Good morning, ECC. It is good to see you all. I consider this a massive privilege to be with you this morning, to share God's word with you. Um, I have been so well-fed um, listening during the week to the sermons from this church, um, from Leviticus, listening to Will Barclay's sermon um, last week, um, and just listening to you people sing today was fantastic. You sing so loudly and so well. Um, I think I should, I should take a recording of you guys singing back home um, as an example of wonderful congregational singing. So again, thank you for having me. Like you heard, my name is Christian, uh, born and raised in Kenya. Um, we are currently fighting over our pet. One of the interns has convinced me to settle on a tortoise. Um, we shall see how that lands in my house, where I'm being outvoted rapidly. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, or switch on your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 16, Ephesians chapter 4, from verse 1 to verse 16. And as you're turning there, I wonder, how many of you have ever played a game where three or four of you were put together and your legs were tied to each other? as three or four of you, and then a, a set of another three or four people would stand at the side and their legs are tied to each other, and it's a race. The goal is the first people to get to the end, or maybe of 20, 30, 20 or 30 meters, right? The trick is you all have to move as one person. The first time I played this game, I didn't know what was happening. I was a pretty fast runner on my rugby team, so I figured, ah, I'll just run quickly. And the place we were playing on was a farm, like an actual farm with cows. So the, the, the game started, the person said, on your mark, set, go, and all of us go. Now me, I'm thinking, I'm quick, let's do this, and I start outrunning everyone else, and surprisingly, what happens? We fall. Now the problem with falling on a farm is there are cows. So as you're falling, and you see the ground rapidly coming to you, you recognize that's not mud, but you're rapidly falling to it, and there's nothing you can do about it. My whole team was upset with me because I am the one who not only landed them inside the cow dung, had I not been thinking of myself and thinking of the team, not only would they be cow dung free, we would have won said race. In many ways, in this text of scripture, what God through Paul is saying is be one, be united, no superstars, the only superstar of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ. We have the privilege of joining him, being one with him, and being one with each other. So I'm hoping that as we go through this text, fundamentally, you'd see that, that we would see that, that God has called us to one walk, which is a united walk, that God himself has made us one with himself and with each other, and that God has given us beautiful and diverse gifts for a single goal, to glorify him through our spiritual maturity. So I will read the text of scripture from verse 4, for the beginning just to verse 3, and we will break it down as we go along. Ephesians chapter 4 from verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility 
and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So just a little bit of, of context here. Paul is actually writing from prison. Paul is writing from prison, and he tells us he's a prisoner for the Lord. He makes the same point in chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul was well-educated, by this time well-liked in the churches. He was well-connected. He did not need to be in jail, but he has landed in jail because he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's preaching that there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And from that jail cell, what he's jealous to see, what he's eager to see, is the unity of God's people, the oneness of God's people. So if you're taking notes and you're looking for, for like mental handles, point one from these three verses is that we have been called to one walk, not three or four separate walks, one walk. And this is the calling that God has given every church, including this church. The call they have received, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called or the calling to which you have received. That idea of walk is a lifestyle. It's not a literal walking. It's how you live, how I live every day. And they are to live in a manner worthy of this call. And what is that call? The gospel of their salvation. In chapter 1, Paul says they were selected by the Father, saved by the Son, sealed by the Spirit as a guarantee that their salvation has not just happened in space and time, but God is coming back for them. In chapter 2, he made it clear that they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In chapter 3, he makes it clear that the mystery of the gospel is that God himself, through his Son Jesus Christ, has pulled Jews and Gentiles into Christ, and they are saved so that, chapter 3, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. That God was using and is using the church to display his wisdom, his beauty, his glory that he saves that the powers and authorities are looking at the church and seeing that is the wisdom of God. Jesus saves. And this walk he calls us to is one in light of that knowledge, that we walk a worthy walk in view of that salvation, in view of that great salvation, in view of that great gospel. Now, you can almost hear the Ephesian church stop at that point and saying, that's awesome, Paul. I really do want to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, but uh, could you tell me how? That'd be nice. Thankfully, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us blank. He doesn't leave the church blank. He says, now here's how. You need three attitudes and one action. If you and I, if every church is going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, three attitudes, humility, gentleness, and patience. And one action, bear with one another in love. Humility is lowliness. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. Humility is lowliness in the sense that it is actually likeness to Christ. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 verse 29 said, Take my yoke upon you for I am gentle and lowly. 
I am humble. The next one is to be gentle. Humility and gentleness tend to come together. This gentleness is meekness, and meekness is not weakness. It's actually strength under control. It is strength that is being channeled to be kind and empathetic toward other people. And the last attitude he tells the Ephesian church to have is one of patience. This is really forbearing. It is really suffering for a long time, which is long suffering. It is being slow to rebuke. It is being slow to be harsh. It is making allowance for people's weaknesses and shortcomings, which is why the action called for after that is bear with one another. Make allowance for each other's sins. And do this, Paul says, in love. Not just tolerating one another, but seeking one another's highest good in Jesus Christ. He tells us, as we do that, as a church does that, verse 3 is going to happen. Then we will be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Note that the unity the church has is a unity of the Spirit. It comes from the Spirit. It cannot be manufactured by men. It cannot be created by a program. It comes from God himself, from God the Spirit. And in a sense of urgency, Paul says, maintain this unity. You catch the kind of contradiction? This unity comes from the Spirit. Yeah. And you maintain that unity. Sometimes, the Ephesian church, and probably us as well, would be tempted to think, oh, just let go and let God, he'll do everything. Paul is like, no, 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 no. The Spirit creates unity. We are charged, the church is charged to maintain that unity. In fact, they are told to be eager to do it, to make every effort to do it. And they are to do this in the bonds of peace. That if they are humble and patient and gentle and bearing with one another, and they are eager to maintain that unity, then what will happen is they will enjoy and experience peace. A peace that they want to preserve and will do everything to preserve that peace and preserve that oneness, that unity that God himself has already given them. When I, I got married, um, this was seven years ago, we, we got married, it was a wonderful ceremony, uh, we went for our honeymoon and we came back and we moved into the house, and um, my wife sent me to go get some shopping while she was doing other things. I got some shopping, and we both like yogurt. So I went, bought the yogurt, put it in the fridge. Her, her, she likes like natural yogurt, and I like strawberry or vanilla flavor. So I very quickly drank my, I think it was vanilla flavor, and then I saw hers, and I was like, oh, there's some left. And I was taking it from the fridge and took the first sip, and she came and took it from my hand and said, no, no, that is my yogurt, not yours. Now, in my heart, I was livid. In my head, I was thinking, two weeks ago, we stood before God and you said, everything I have, I share with you. You said that. Now I'm stuck with you and you won't even share yogurt with me. For like a day and a half, we didn't talk to each other. Unless it was purely functional. Do you know where the keys are? They're over there. Eventually, I can't remember how, but we reconciled. And my house was almost fractured over yogurt. The main problem there is yours truly was not being humble. He was not being gentle. He was most definitely not being patient. 
the last thing on my mind was trying to serve my wife for the good of my wife. That just was not occurring to me at all. In a much bigger way, when we gather as a church, when we do life as a church, what God is hoping to create in us is less of the disunity that you are seeing in my marriage, less of the I want, and more of the what do you need. What he's trying to create and achieving actually through his spirit is helping us be humble toward one another, gentle toward one another, patient with one another, bearing with one another's sins. What he's creating is a people who love each other. In the words of John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. By this will all men know that you're my disciples when you have love for one another. That when we love each other like this, what unbelievers see is God. Put differently, when we proclaim this glorious message of how a holy God made his people in his image, but they sinned against him, yet he still sent his son to save those sinners if they would turn away from their sin and trust in him by his death and resurrection made that forgiveness available. When we share that message, we make the gospel audible. But when we love one another, we make the gospel visible. And unbelievers look at us and say, surely they must know a loving and forgiving God. Why do you say that? Look how they love each other. Look how they forgive each other. And that creates a united people. And we need to recognize that this is what we've been called to. But secondly, we need to rejoice and know that God has enabled us to do this. Amen? That the God who commands something also provides us with the ability and the power to do it. Second Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Philippians 2.13, it is him who is at work within us both to will us and to work according to his good pleasure. It's like what John Bunyan was accredited as saying. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It tells me to fly, and it gives me wings. We can rejoice that God is enabling us to do this. But, honest advertising, you also have to realize this is going to be a lot of hard work for a very long time. Actually, our whole lives. There's going to be a massive sign over my head and over your head written under construction until we die. And God is going to use the church not only to make me loving, but to help me make others loving, gentle, humble, and united. But if we do that, the result will be remarkable peace. That will be the result. Perfect peace? No. But remarkable peace. Because we won't be fighting over yogurt. We will be loving each other and seeking each other's highest good in Christ. God has called us to this one walk in unity as members of one body with one goal, our maturity to the display and glory of Jesus Christ and his salvation. Which is why Paul says, let me give you some good reasons why you can stay united. 
Let me give you some good reasons why you should think of yourselves as being united. And the next couple of verses from verse 4 to 6 tell us exactly why. Simply because we are one. We as a church can and must be united because we are one. Here's what Paul says in verse 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who who is over all and through all and in all. Do you catch the repeating word? One body, in reference to the body of Jesus Christ, the church is the body of Jesus Christ, not just the international global church. This church is the body of Jesus Christ. Every single local church is the body of Jesus Christ. One spirit, every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that filled Jews in Acts chapter 2 is the same Holy Spirit that filled Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. One hope. The Bible tends to use that word to signify our sharing in in Christ's glory, I beg your pardon, both now and when he returns. Hope has to do with something we are looking forward to, right? And we are looking forward to his return. We all have the same hope that right now we are sharing in the glory of Christ because we are indwelt by his spirit and being made like him. But someday our faith will become sight and we will see him as he is. That is our great hope. One Lord. And that word Lord is obviously a reference to Jesus Christ, our Lord, which Paul has already called him. But it's also linking us with that term Yahweh, who is called the Lord, that this Jesus is the Lord. He is God. One faith. The two meanings there, that we have been saved and became part of a united one church by our faith in Jesus. That's the only way any of us became part of the church. But also one faith, a common understanding of who God is and what he has done. The one true historic faith, the Jude chapter chapter 3 faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. One baptism, one baptism into the spirit and one baptism in obedience to the great commission, in obedience to Jesus Christ, that we be baptized as an outward symbol of our inward faith. We are baptized the same way. One God and Father over all. Every child of God is a child of God. God has no grandchildren. And he has no favorites. Every believer, regardless of socioeconomic status, political persuasion, every believer has God for a father. And did you notice how the whole Trinity is in on this? One spirit, one Lord, one father. The whole Godhead is in on this. And God, through his servant Paul, is saying, here are your reasons for why you and I need to think of ourselves as one, not as disjointed members, same way God, the the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not disjointed members, but one. Imagine if you are a choir master, or even better yet, you're the head of an orchestra, and you come, and there's the wind section, there's the string section, there's the rhythm section, drums, whatever, and you say, okay, we are going to play Mozart. Okay? It's in four for time. One, two, three. And just as you're about to start conducting, the drummer decides, I want to play I'm Bad by Michael Jackson. The, the piano guy decides, I want to play Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. The horn section decides, we are going to play Kenny G. And they all do it at the same time. What would you do? 
Say, oh, guys, I know you're so eager to play. I love your initiative. Can we come back, please, and play the right thing? Is that what you do? You'd be like, wait, what is that noise? Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> what are you doing? You'd be confused, right? In a similar way, God is saying, be one. One agenda, one body. Not several bodies. Not a Jewish body and a Gentile body. Not a rich body and a poor body. Not a cool body and a not so cool body. One body. We don't do our own things in our own enclaves. We are one family. Now, that doesn't mean we are not different and he's about to go there. But he's saying, look, the way this works is we are one. Which means you and I need to be a little suspicious of our own preferences. Same with the horn section, should have been a little suspicious of doing Kenny G. We should be a little suspicious of what we want when we come to church, when we gather, when we do life together. In line with that humility, we should be saying, yeah, I have preferences and there's nothing wrong with having preferences. But I want to lay those down for the good of other people in this church. And not just be suspicious of my preferences. Come back to the Bible and ask, are these preferences even biblical? <laughs> Maybe they are. But be suspicious of our own preferences because the scripture says my heart is desperately wicked. Let me ask and press in on yourself and on me. Might you be tempted to create more than one body within the body? Might you and I be tempted to say, my real church is my life group. My real church are my fellow countrymen. Yeah, I'm part of ECC, but my real church is fill in the blank. Nothing wrong with those groups, not at all. In fact, if you're not part of a life group, I'm pretty sure all your elders would say, please join one. But what God wants more than anything is a united people, one people. And maybe you're here and you don't even know this Jesus Christ. You just see how these Christians behave and it intrigues you. Here's the deal. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, first, we are really glad you're here. Honestly, we are. And if you're wondering, why do these people behave like family? It's not because they are so amazing. It's because they have an amazing Savior. The reason they behave like family is they have been loved with an everlasting love that forgave their sin at the cross, that opened their eyes and allowed them to run to Jesus and say, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. And if you're here and you don't know what an eternal, actual, spiritual family is like, we offer ourselves to you as that spiritual, eternal, actual family. And it happens through Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to know more about that, please talk to the person who invited you here or any member of this church. They'd be happy to reorganize their afternoon to explain to you what it means to know this God who has loved us with an everlasting love. God has called us to walk in unity as members of one body, but he has also given us one goal, our spiritual maturity, so that as a mature church, we would display the gospel, display who Jesus is and what he has done on behalf of sinners. Ephesians chapter 4, from verse 7. But grace 
was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, pause. Grace was given to each one of us. He's just made a big case for be united. Ephesians, be united. In fact, be one. Now he's saying, oh, by the way, God gave each of you different gifts and gave each of you different gifts with enough grace to fully use those gifts to serve the church. Verse 8, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the, the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Here's the picture being painted. That Christ himself came from heaven, descended, right? And then dies, descended, rose again, and ascended. And Paul here is quoting the verse we read earlier from Psalm 68. So what's happening in Psalm 68? The psalmist is rejoicing about how God delivered Israel out of Egypt and the land of slavery into the promised land and gave them gifts, gave them everything they needed, and used them as a people to show the nations to be a light to the ends of the earth. Paul is saying that psalmist was looking forward to Jesus Christ who gave his people victory, plucked them out of the kingdom of darkness, brought them into the kingdom of light, and gave them gifts, and is using them as a church to show the nations and the powers and principalities who he is and how he saves and the manifold wisdom of God. In view of that, in view of that, he gave his people not just spiritual gifts, verse 7, look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. The gifts he gave were people. These apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor shepherds. Now, you might be asking, okay, what's, what's the deal with apostles and prophets? Do we still have those? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, says this, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself being the cornerstone. In other words, apostles and prophets were part of the foundation of the church, the beginning of the church, just like an actual building. This building has a foundation. We don't rebuild the foundation on the third floor, then continue building and rebuild the foundation on the fifth floor, right? You build the foundation once, it's done. In the same way, God used his apostles to speak his exact word and build his church as the foundation, and after that, it's done. Apostles, prophets, done. That office has ceased. What of evangelists? I'm not sure, if I'm being honest. But I think it is linked to the same foundational work. Depending on how old you are, when you hear evangelists, you think Billy Graham. Thank God for Billy Graham. I don't think that's what Paul meant. I think what he meant is that these evangelists would go to a place where there has been no gospel witness and explain the gospel kind of like what the apostles themselves are doing, which is why Philip is called an evangelist. But pastors, teachers, those persist. And God gives these elders as a gift to the church. For what purpose? Verse 12. To equip the saints for work of ministry. To equip the saints for work of ministry. The whole goal 
of these gifts he gave is to empower the church to do the work of ministry. And what is said work of ministry? Glad you asked. Paul answers the question. For building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity, there's that word again, of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the knowledge of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. These gifts called pastors and teachers, and that word pastors or elders, bishops, is used interchangeably in the New Testament. These pastor, elders, and teachers are given to the church. They equip the church to know how to use their spiritual gifts to further strengthen the church in two big ways, in knowledge and in character, that they grow they equip the saints to build the body until they attain unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. That they know who God is. They know who they have believed. And they are persuaded that he is able. But also to a mature manhood, to the measure and stature and fullness of Christ. That they think like Christ, knowledge, but they live like Christ. That they walk in a manner worthy of Christ, so that they may not be tossed about like infants or like children, to and fro and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness, is what verse 14 says. So that these mature people who have been well-equipped know, hey, we are going to listen to the word of God coming from the gifts he gave us. We are not going to listen to human cunning and craftiness. Instead, verse 15, here's what it says, rather, these people, this church, they speak the truth in love. They speak the truth in love. Earlier, it was the elders and teachers who were speaking the truth, equipping this church. Now who's speaking the truth? The church themselves. Did you catch it? that they've been well-equipped, and now they speak this truth in love, and they are growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. They are becoming more like Christ because they are discipling one another. From the head, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, and this is the part I hope we don't miss, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So that it builds itself up. Who's building up this body? Talk to me. Church, it's building itself. So question, is Jesus building the church? Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church. Is Jesus building the church? Yes. Is the church building itself up? Yes. Which one is it? Yes. It's both. He's in us, working through us, working for us, working around us, working despite of us, and empowering us to work with each other, strengthen each other, disciple each other, encourage each other, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Perfectly? No. Persistently? Yes. Peacefully? Yes. So let me ask you real quick as we close. How has God gifted you? What are your 
spiritual gifts. Now, I do not suggest you go to the internet and look for a spiritual gifts inventory. That will be a waste of your time. But I do suggest you pray about it. That you talk to fellow members of the church and say, hey, what do you think my gifts are? That you talk to your elders and ask them, do you guys need help anywhere? I double dog dare you. Come 10 minutes early on a Sunday morning and just ask, put me to work. I want to build up this body. I don't know what I'm here to do, but just give me something. And you might hate it and discover, that is not for me. Let me try something else. But persistently ask. Find out where can I serve. Because God has given all of us enough grace to use our gifts to build each other up. What if you don't know your gift? Again, pray, read, ask, listen to your elders. They are gifts to equip you. And right there, I just have to tell you, I have never been through a more rigorous, intense interview in my life than I faced at ECC. It was insane. <laughs> but you know, the odd thing is, I didn't feel harassed. I felt cared for. They actually wanted to know how my soul is doing. They actually wanted to know how is your marriage? How is your wife? Can we throw the tortoise out of the house? <laughs> they actually care. If that's how they care about me, man, if you give them half a chance, they will care about you. They are God's gift to you. Listen to them. Let them in. But also, be vulnerable with each other. We are to be vulnerable enough to hear the truth spoken in love. To open up our lives and say, this is who I am. This is where I'm at. And if you're worried about judgment, don't worry about that. It's like the two people who fell down a pit latrine. Then they crawled up and one asked the other guy, do I smell as bad as you look? We don't get to judge each other here. I have a cousin who tells, who tells me, I can't go to church. There are too many hypocrites. And I tell her, oh, no, don't let that stop you. Come, there's room for one more. Just slither on in. <laughs> We've never claimed to be perfect. But we've claimed to be loved perfectly. And we, with all God's energy, will love each other with that love. But will you also be courageous enough to share the truth in love? The Bible says, blessed are the wounds of a friend, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Will we be willing to tell each other, yeah, brother, I don't think you should be watching that right now. Yeah, sister, I don't think you should be talking like that right now. Not to embarrass, but to love, to strengthen, so that we may build each other up. Who builds the church? Jesus? Yes. Each other? Yes. Which is it? Yes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Grant, O oh Lord, that we would be one, that we would be united, that we would listen to the gift of elders you've given us as they equip us so that we would be not only just fully equipped, but with that equipping, strengthen each other and build each other up, that the church, that this church, that ECC, would build itself up in love and be a visible display of your gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.